to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Powerful lessons in personal change. Absolutely legendary book. Uh, when I first read it, maybe four years ago, it was my number one book and it stayed there for a very, very long time. And I'm glad to have reread it again. Yeah, I've read it three times and I think... Each time I read it, there's a different section and different mm. part of the book that I value the most. Agreed. Which is really interesting because I think as you yourself become more and more effective, I think the habits that strike you the most are different each time you come, come back to it. Yeah, definitely. The book, The Seven Habits are set out. The first three habits take you from being dependent to being independent. So that's a private victory. And then the next three habits take you from being independent going past that to becoming interdependent and that's the public victory and then the final, the seventh habit, that's the renewal that caps it all off and makes all the others possible. So all of these habits we're about to talk about, they're all basic, they're very primary and they represent internalization of really correct principles upon which enduring happiness and success are based upon. It says that effectiveness is based on principles. These principles are what form the basis of a person's character. They create this empowering center from which you can effectively solve problems, maximize opportunities, continually learn and integrate other principles in this upward spiral of growth. So you start at the base level of this principle and you build upon the principle with even greater and greater successes. So one key principle that's explored throughout the book is all about the PPC balance. And it's best explained by Aesop's fable. And you might've heard of this one of the goose who laid the golden egg. It's about a poor farmer One day he just walks out to his ranch and he discovers that his pet goose has laid a glittering gold egg. So he'd be pretty excited if you're this poor farmer. And at first you think it's some kind of trick. So he throws the egg aside, he has second thoughts put on it and it turns out this is really a pure gold, golden egg. Fantastic for the farmer. He can't believe his fortune. And he becomes even more incredulous the following day that the goose laid another egg and the following day another egg and so forth. And he becomes fabulously wealthy but with increasing wealth comes greed and impatience and unable to wait day after day for the golden egg. He thought, stuff it, I want it now. And he kills the goose. And when he kills the goose, there's actually no golden eggs left inside. Yeah, the uh, farmer killed the, the goose that laid the golden egg. He chopped open its belly, expecting to find just a treasure trove of golden eggs there that was slowly popping out one each day. And he thought, I'll get them all at once. But of course, once the goose was killed, all the golden eggs were gone. And so what he's saying here is that there's a, an important balance here between getting those golden eggs, but also looking after the goose that lays the golden eggs as well. So he, he calls this the PPC balance. So the P, the production, that's the egg out the other side, but you can't just focus on the eggs. You also have to think about the PC, which is a productive capacity. So that's feeding the goose, giving it a little stroke, telling it it's a real good good goose and <laughs> and growing that goose so that it can keep laying those those golden eggs so this ppc balance so p this stands for production the desired results the golden eggs pc this stands for production capacity the ability or asset that produces the golden eggs i think most people are stuck in p and all they're thinking about is p that you need to take a step back and also think about growing your pc if you can improve your pc It might take a bit more effort and you're sacrificing some short-term results, but over the long-term, if you can grow your PC, in turn, it grows your P over the long-term as well. Yeah, you might be five years into your career and you're doing the same work and ahead, it just means you're going to be doing the same work and you're producing the same level of golden eggs. One way you might increase your PC, you go to university or you do some workshops after class or you drop back to four days a week to just 
focus on learning and development. And in the long run, the eggs are going to be even more golden. They're going to be bigger and they're going to be juicier and they're going to be almost edible. Yeah, plenty of gold there. Covey talks about, I guess, a, a real world example. He said he wanted his daughter's room cleaned. If you just focus on the pee, then he can just go and clean that room or he can hire a cleaner to go and clean the room. But what he wanted to do was focus on the PC and that's encouraging his daughter to go and clean the room for herself. It's similar, I guess, for, for me, if there's some interns at work, often it's just easier to just do the job yourself. If there's a small task, it's going to take you five minutes to do, but it might take you 15 minutes to teach them to do it. So you think, oh, stuff it, I'll just do it myself. That's very P-focused. If you can take the step back and realize that if you invest in that PC, if you grow the capacity, if you grow other people's capability over the long term, that's five minutes a day saved by me from that one single long-term investment. And over the long term, it means that uh, everybody is going to be able to get more done. Mm, yeah, that P, PC balance, it's everywhere. Being conscious of it means you'll be able to better understand where to invest your time and what side of the two you should be focusing on first. Okay, so we're going to kick it off now with the first three habits, which are all about private victory. And the goal of this is to move you from dependent into independent. Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book, A Man's Search for Meaning, he was a psychiatrist and a Jew uh, back in the Holocaust. So he was imprisoned in the death camps of Nazi Germany, where he experienced things that are so repugnant to our sense of decency that we can't even talk about it. It was the most horrible grouping of experiences that we could possibly imagine in the time that we're in today. So his parents and his brother and his wife all died in the camps and they were sent to their gas chambers. And Franklin himself, he suffered torture and loads of indignities never knowing from moment to moment whether he's going to survive the next day. Despite suffering these circumstances, he began to become aware of what he later called the last of the human freedoms. And this is something that all the Nazi captors couldn't take away. They could control his environment. They could do whatever they wanted to his body. But Viktor Frankl himself was a self-aware being who could look as an observer at his very involvement in that process. So his basic identity was intact. He could decide within himself how all of this would affect him. So between what happened to him, all the stimulus, and then his response to it, was his freedom or his power to choose that response. So habit one is called be proactive. It's all about that gap between stimulus and response. So it says that whilst we can't control the things that happen to us, the thing that we can control is our own reactions to it. So most people think there's a stimulus and then you respond to it automatically. That's just what happens. But habit one being proactive says that no, there's actually a gap between stimulus and response. And it's in that gap that we can be proactive and it's in that gap that we can choose how we respond. So we're starting off with the extreme example of Viktor Frankl, right? And he had a certain stimulus that happened to him. Then there was a gap and then he responded in an entirely unique kind of way. And this is the choice all of us have in every one of the moments of our lives. If you lose your job, if you get called a funny name, or if someone beeps the car at you from behind and cuts you off or something, yes, you can just respond straight away and get angry and have no control over your emotions, or you can realize that there is a gap there and you have the choice and the proactivity to choose your response. He says that, that we all have this responsibility, being a response ability, as in we have the ability to choose how we respond. And that's what differentiates humans from other animals. Most other animals, they don't have that self-awareness or the perspective to be able to step back and look at themselves objectively from a distance. Most other animals just have a stimulus and then they respond to it. 
The humans are the only animals that are able to take that conscious step back, choose to take the responsibility and choose to choose how they respond. So reactive people are always affected by their physical environment. If the weather is good, they feel good. If it isn't, it affects their performance. If they're feeling miserable or if anything does anything to them, they're just completely and always affected by whatever's happening from the outside and they've got no real control about how they control their own behaviours. They're also affected by the social environment or the social weather. When people treat them well, they feel well. When people don't, they become defensive or protective. So they really build their emotional lives around the behavior of others and empowering weaknesses of all the other people around them to control them. Obviously, we don't want that. We don't want to be reactive. We don't want to be driven purely by feelings and circumstances and conditions and the environment around us. We want to be proactive. Proactive people, they're the ones who are driven by their core values. They're driven by their deep-seated principles. These are the people who are carefully thinking about and selecting and internalizing their actions. So obviously taking initiative is a big part of being proactive. So that old saying I've heard a few times, if it's meant to be, it's up to me, which sounds incredibly simple, almost simple, too simple to mm. be true. But uh, I guess you can go around your whole life a long time not actually realizing that you actually, in a weird way, have control of everything that what happens to you. I mean, everyone has certain circumstances that are negative to you and you might have some bad things that happen, but every single time it's really up to you and it's your own responsibility for anything that happens. There's a big difference. Yeah, I think the automatic response is not to be proactive. As in, it's very easy. The, the natural way of being is just reactive and just you know being acted upon by all the things that happen around you. The harder thing is to consciously choose that you know if it's up to me, it's up to me. You're the one who has to choose to go out there and be proactive. And we're not talking like a small difference here. We're not talking like a, a 25% difference in effectiveness between reactive and proactive people. Covey says it's like a 5,000% difference. Mm. I don't know if that's you know statistically studied and rigorously identified, but I'd say that's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it is. I think it is. It's uh, the people out there who are taking on some of the biggest problems in the world I think in a weird kind of way, they're taking responsibility for that issue. Mm. So they can actually Mm. produce things that are 5,000% difference compared to the person who just plays their whole life like a victim. Um, And then because of that, it's really the proactive ones who end up with the big jobs and the best jobs and uh, start the best businesses and all that because they're taking responsibility for what's happening in the world. It's easier to see reactive people around us because it's obvious in the language that they use. You know, I... She makes me so mad. Oh, if only my husband were, were more patient, I'd be able to be more effective. Or that's just me. That's just the way I am. Or that's just something I have to do. I have to go and do this. So you've got to be careful uh, in the language you use yourself as well because whilst it's easy to spot this in other people, it's often harder to identify it in ourselves. But there is a, a very di- big difference between reactive language and proactive language. Mm. One thing I see is the big difference is probably in busyness. Like people who are reactive, in my opinion, say, I'm too busy, I have to do all these things. Whereas proactive people realize they're probably really not that busy. They've just got their own priorities and are choosing the exact things they should be doing. And inherent in that, they're happy with all the things they're not doing. The reactive people are always trying to externalize the blame. They say, there's nothing I can do. Whereas a proactive person says, okay, this is a tough situation, but let's look at our alternatives. 
you know, a reactive person says, he makes me so mad, but the proactive person says, I control my own feelings and I'm choosing my own response. So there's a big difference there between the, the reactive person who's just looking to blame someone else or something else versus the proactive person who is recognizing that it's completely up to them. So an excellent way to become more self-aware regarding our degree of proactivity is to look at where we focus our time and energy. And he does this through a diagram which looks at something called the circle of influence and the circle of concern. So you can't see it, so we'll just explain it uh, verbally. So if you think about it, we have a wide range of things that we're concerned about, our health, our children, your problems at work, the national debt, your own debt, nuclear war, or anything like that. We could separate those things that we have no mental or emotional involvement by creating a circle of concern. So the circle of concern means everything within that circle is what we're concerned about. Everything outside of that, we have no concern over. That's the first circle. There's a second circle. And the second circle is the things that we can control or the things that we can influence. So the things that we can influence, we could, you know, we could influence our health by going for a walk around the block each morning. Or we can influence our finances by saving a little bit extra money or foregoing a purchase. These are all the things that we can control and we can influence. And often what we find is that this circle of influence is significantly smaller than our circle of concern. If we're not careful, there's going to be a hell of a lot of things that we're worried about, that we're concerned about, but they fall outside that circle of influence. So these two circles, it's like one circle inside of the other, like a bit of a bullseye, like yeah. an archery target. Yeah, I think one way, good way of looking at it is if you turn on the Channel 7 news or whatever news station, depending on what country you're in at night, and you hear a, a terrific, not a terrific, a, a horrific, a horrific <laughs> story, right, of a, a mother overseas who threw their baby over a bridge and then murdered their two cousins and blew up the local hospital or mm, something. Horrible story. Horrible story, and your heart can go out to them. But when we're looking at it through the paradigm of circle of influence versus circle of concern, mate, in terms of influence, you basically got no influence over that. Mm. So in listening to that and getting your emotions tied up about something you're not influencing you're being completely ineffective and you're putting your energy of what's in your brain to something that you're not going to be able to impact the world on yeah i think looking at it through that filter of the two different circles can really just shift the way you think about things the reactive people they're the ones who've got a massive massive circle of concern they're worried about every single thing that's going on but they're going to have a small circle of influence meaning whilst they're worried about it there's not really much they can do to change it Whereas the proactive people, they purely focus on what's inside their circle of influence. It means that the circle of influence grows and it means that the circle of concern shrinks. So that gap between the two is getting smaller and smaller, meaning you're not only concerned about less, but you're also able to influence more. Stephen Covey's got an example here of someone he used to work with, but I think this is related to everybody. Say if you've got a boss who's very tough to work with, Say in this case, he's very good at being task-oriented but not very good with people. A lot of people in your organization might be complaining and whinging about your boss and these people, they're focusing on their circle of concern uh, and they're not worrying about their influence. Now, if you're someone who's proactive, whenever you come across a situation where something isn't right and everyone else is whinging about it, you can focus on your circle of influence. Think, how can I influence this situation to make it better in the long run? And you might come up with new ways. You might actually be able to help your boss in their weaknesses and team up with them to actually have better overall outcomes. And if you do that, I'd say your boss is probably going to rely on you a lot more in the decision-making process. And because of that, overall, your circle of 
influence has increased because you're influencing the boss rather than just standing by the water cooler hanging shit on the boss. It's a very stoic principle. So a lot of the stoicism books that we've talked about, they talked about you know things you can control versus things you can't control. And it was one of our very early episodes, A Guide to the Good Life. He says there's actually three things. There's what you can control, uh, which is obviously the things that you focus all your attention on. There's the things you can't control. Uh, and obviously, you should try and forget about those. So decrease your circle of concern. And then there's the things that you can have some control over but not complete control over so in those senses that's when you need to boil it down to something you can control so gandhi is a good example obviously he had a big concern in that he wanted to change you know the whole treatment of an of a nation's worth of people which is a massive task uh some people might think that's way outside of their circle of control even though it's within their circle of concern but what gandhi was doing he boiled it down to the things that he could control you know, he would do very small things in the beginning that he could control, you know, uh, making uh, very small protests and then building it up over time and over time, showing that other people that they actually can control, they can influence this situation as well. So each time he did something small within his own control, it actually grew other people's circle of influence as well. So whenever you have a problem about anything, by saying you're not responsible, you're making yourself a powerless victim. So you diminish your ability to influence the situation. So if you really want to improve your situation, you can work on the one thing over which you have control over, and that's yourself. We've got an exercise for you to run through here. In your mind's eye, imagine yourself going to the funeral of a loved one. You picture yourself driving up to the chapel, parking the car, getting out. You see all the people in dark suits and dark dresses walking into the chapel, as you walk inside the building, you notice the flowers, the soft organ music, you see the faces of your friends and family that you pass along the way. You feel this shared sorrow for the loss that you've all experienced together, but also the joy of having known the people that are around you. As you walk up to the front of the room, you look inside the casket and you suddenly come face to face with someone you recognize very intimately. It's yourself. This is your funeral three years from today. All of these people have come to honor you to express their feelings of love and appreciation for your life. As you take a seat as an observer of this funeral, there are speakers, someone from your family, someone from one of your friends, someone from a, a colleague from work. And now think deeply to yourself. What would you like each of these people to say about you and about your life? What kind of husband, wife, mother, father would you like these words to reflect? What kind of son or daughter or cousin? What kind of friend? What kind of working associate? What would you like these people to say about the value of your life? The most fundamental application of begin with the end in mind is to begin today with the image, picture or paradigm of the end of your life, you in your casket, as your frame of reference or the criterion you would like everything else examined. So each part of your life, today's behavior can be examined in the context of the whole. So what happens to you most relative to the end? So habit two is all about begin with the end in mind. It means not getting caught up in the day-to-day -day busyness with no guiding vision or no overarching purpose. By beginning with the end in mind, you put a place that you want to head towards. And then all of the things you do throughout your life guide you towards that, that end point that you hope to achieve one day. So you start with a very clear understanding of your final destination. I mean, it's very easy to get caught up in an activity trap in the busyness of life. You're working harder and harder and harder 
climbing the ladder of success only to discover that this ladder the whole time it's been leaning against the wrong wall. It's possible to be very, very, very busy, 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 busy throughout your whole entire life without being effective whatsoever. It's important to differentiate between that busyness and efficiency with the effectiveness. And Covey says that all things are created twice. The first creation begins in the mind. So it's the design of this thing mentally first. So you're thinking about it, you're planning it, you're envisioning it. That's the first creation of what you hope to achieve. If you think about it, if you're not beginning with the end in mind, you're living your life by default, whatever's been handed on you. You're living reactively by the scripts handed by family and associates and other people's agendas and all the pressures of circumstances that have been thrown upon you. And they're scripts from earlier years, from your training and your conditioning. Now, beginning with the ending mind, we're being much more proactive to take a step back and think, hey, what the hell do I want my life to be about? And you've gotten a vision from the final destination. And from there, you can actually take the steps to go in the direction that you yourself with your own values you want to go rather than what everyone else wants you to do. So self-awareness and imagination and initiative is mandatory for beginning with the end in mind. But if you put it in this way, habit one says you are the creator, you have the power. And then habit two is what is your first creation and the vision that you want to create? He distinguishes between leadership and management here, that leadership is that first creation, the one beginning in the mind setting the vision, and then management is the second creation, the physical creation of bringing that vision to life. It's sort of like if you're trekking through the jungle, the manager's the one who's cracking the whips and saying, keep pounding, keep going forward, keep marching forward, whereas the leadership is the person jumping in the helicopter and taking a flight vertically to get an overarching view of the jungle as a whole. So, you know, similar to the ladder and the wall, you know, the the leadership is making sure you put the ladder in the right place in the first instance, and then the management is taking each of those steps up the ladder. Yeah, another analogy. Yeah, mix another one in. What I got like just to throw. We love multiple analogies just to confuse the listeners <laughs> a little bit. That's all right. But efficient management without effective leadership is like straightening the deck chairs in a very efficient way whilst you're on the Titanic. Yeah. If you're going down on the ship. You shouldn't be worrying about if the chairs are lined up straight. Exactly. So that's where the leadership comes in and goes, all right, where's our effort and energy going to be placed for, you know, for the right kind of uh, jungle or the right kind of wall <laughs> or the right kind of iceberg? <laughs> yeah. Analogies it. break down a little bit, but that's all right. No, that works though. That works though. So this habit too, this beginning with the end in mind, it's all about that, the leadership level. It's all about the initiative. It's all about designing that first creation, that first vision that you have for yourself. Covey says that through imagination, we can visualize this currently uncreated world. We can see that there's potential that lies within us and we can start to create or guide a bit of a path forward. And to tie back to what Viktor Frankl said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he said, ultimately, man should not ask what the meaning of life is, but must recognize that it is he who is asked. Mm. So if you're a reactive person, you're just a victim of life circumstances, but like Victor. Life is asking you, what the hell do you want from your life? And it's up to you to get this vision happening. Nice. If we go one more metaphor, if we can squeeze it in is think of yourself as like a you're trying to set up a computer or a new program. So habit one, be proactive. That's saying that you are the programmer. You've got the power to write the code. Now habit two, begin with the end in mind. That's saying, okay, go and write this code. So until we accept the idea that we are responsible, that we are the programmer, we won't be able to write that program in the first place. Got a question for you here. 
What one thing could you do that you aren't doing now that if you did this on a regular basis, it's going to make a tremendous positive difference in your personal life? It's a big question. We'll come back to that. <laughs> we'll come back to that. So habit one, that said, you are the creator, you're in charge, you're the programmer. Habit two, begin with the end in mind. That was the first mental creation that was writing the code. Now, habit three, put first things first. Habit three is all about the second creation, the physical creation. So we've started with writing the code or writing the program. Now we're going to run this bad boy. So habit one and two are essential prerequisites for habit three. And habit three is putting first things first. So whilst leadership decides where the first things are, what jungle, what iceberg, what wall, <laughs> all that, it is management that puts them first day by day, moment by moment. So it's the management is the disciplined day-to-day stuff that you need to do to actually carry out your vision. There's a sick thing here. Uh, it's called the Eisenhower Matrix, but I think Covey's just adopted it as his own. Yeah. Um, and we'll give it to him because I think he made it. I've heard it. I've, I've seen it on slides used before, Covey's Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll call it, let's call it Covey's Matrix. So there's two columns, two rows. It's a, a two-by-two grid with four sections there. So if we look at it like a, a horizontal axis, on the left, we've got urgent. On the right, we've got not urgent. And then vertically, at the top, we've got important. And at the bottom, we've got not important. So by finding the intersection of all of these, it, it gives us with four different quadrants. We've got important and urgent we've got important and not urgent we've got not important and urgent and we've got not important and not urgent so hopefully you've got a bit of a visual there yeah hopefully you laid it out pretty well then so urgent means anything requires immediate attention things like now it's happening now your phone rings the boss screams that you do it now um and if you say if your phone rings most people can't stand it to allow it to just Mm. ring out you just feel like you have to answer it. It's just acting on you right now and it's something you can't just, you know, delegate to the future. Even if you spend hours and hours preparing materials for this extremely important meeting or anything like that, goes off, it just takes your full attention. Yeah. He says it's funny that, you know, if there's someone in a meeting and then your phone rings, you tell the person who's right in front of you sitting there with you, you just say, oh, can you just wait five minutes and take the phone call, which is a bit ridiculous. Yeah, you'd think the person sitting right in front, in front of you would be more important, but... yeah. You'd think so. You'd think so. <laughs> Not for most in human nature. So all these urgent things, they're visible, they press on you, they insist on action and they're really popular with others because they're just sitting there in front of you and they're usually easy and fun to do but really a lot of the time they're not that important. Yeah, exactly. So there's a hell of a lot of uh, things that we think are important but really they're not. Uh, there's a lot of tasks that we do in our work that probably don't need to be done. There's a hell of a lot of things that we do in our private time at, at home that are a waste of time that don't need to be done either. So there's a lot of things that people get caught in doing not important things. So importance is all about the results. If something is important, it contributes to your mission, your values and your high priority priority goals and whatever you created with our first creation due to habit two. So you must act to seize the opportunity to make things happen. Okay, so let's start with quadrant four. Quadrant four is in the bottom right. Quadrant four is not urgent and it's not important. So really, these are just time wasters. This is the trivia, the busy work. Maybe it's some of those phone calls that don't need to be answered. What we need to do for the quadrant four activities is really get rid of them altogether. They're not urgent, they're not important, so why the hell are you doing it? People who are living in this quadrant are basically living irresponsible lives. Now, quadrant three, it is urgent but not important. So, is that me? Yeah. 
Do you need it? <laughs> that's, so fucking, no. that's ironic. That gets in. <laughs> Astro's phone just went off, by the way. Didn't answer it, though. Well Not done. important. If you answered it during this, uh, that this part of the, the podcast, <laughs> would have been funny. Where were we? Quadrant three? Quadrant three is urgent but not important. Mate, that's phone calls. <laughs> Some phone calls. Too that's, good. that's hilarious. So a lot of people spend their time in quadrant three thinking they're in quadrant one. Mm. As in they think they're doing urgent and important things, but they're doing urgent and non-important things. So they're reacting to all those urgent things, doing that really busy work, spending their full day on their email, replying straight mm. away. And uh, they're acting like that in terms of their tasks, yeah. management. Yeah, these are really just distractions and the advice here is to delegate these. Get, you know, If they're urgent and they maybe they have to be done, if they're not important and you don't need to do them, then get somebody else to do them as much as possible. Quadrant one here, the top left, that's urgent and important. So these are you know things that really have to be done now and they do contribute to your mission or your vision as a whole. Um, these are the things that look... They're urgent, they need to be done now, they are important, so look, you just got to do them now, really. Now, the really important one here, which is really the point of the chapter, is all about quadrant two, and this is the top right of the, the four-part graph, and these things are non-urgent, but they're important, and this is really the heart of effective personal management, all the things that are not urgent, but important. So, if you think back to that first question we asked, what are the things that you're not doing right now? That if you did it on a regular basis would make a tremendous positive difference in your personal life. What was it for you, Ash, though? Uh, we should have had a longer pause to think about it a bit more. But I'm sure in, in each area, whether that was in work, whether that was in health, whether that was in relationships, there are definitely quadrant two activities that uh, I've dodged a question pretty well here, haven't I? Yeah, that was a nothing, mate. <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say for me, and I think this would be the same for everyone, is just taking four hours out every six months to write down your goals. Mm. Writing down goals, everyone knows that we read about it all the time, how much Four leverage. Four is a long time to do goals. Well, I do through the um, the future authoring yeah. program. We actually go in a very, very detailed kind of way. But it's only four hours of work. It's an extremely important because of the, the, mm. the leverage you've got, but it's not urgent whatsoever. You can keep pushing that back in into the future and never actually get around to doing it. Yeah, that's the issue with all these quadrant two things. They're vitally important. But because they're not urgent, because there's no fires that you need to put out right now, because there's no one calling you on the phone to do it right now, it's very easy to be forgotten about. So it's absolutely vital that you schedule these somehow. You lock down a time to be doing quadrant two activities. Otherwise, they'll be forgotten about altogether. If you think back to the start of the episode, we talked about P versus PC production. That's really probably your quadrant one stuff where you're doing important things that need to be done right now. But you really have to be careful to think about when can you do this PC productive capacity stuff. The quadrant two are the things that are vitally important but not urgent. These are the things that are going to grow your productive capacity. If you give yourself enough time to do quadrant two on a regular basis, increasing your productive capacity, it means your production is going to get a lot better in the future. Now, to link it a little bit to the the moment we're in right now, it's the middle of March 2020. It's the probably, I don't know if this is the peak of what's happening with the coronavirus and all that. There's a lot of people sent home to work from home and some people have started to lose their jobs and whatnot. Now, in terms of production, this might actually hurt your ability to lay golden eggs, mm. but this is an incredible opportunity if you understand this to work on those important non-urgent things. It might be writing down your goals. It might be doing those online courses, training your skills up, learning new things to improve your production capacity. So then when we go out of this moment, 
your production, your golden eggs are going to be bigger and more golden. Yeah, most certainly. Covey says that it's important to make time for these quadrant two, and often everyone's you know everyone's busy, everyone's calendar is pretty full with stuff. But if you look at it honestly, there's probably a lot of quadrant three, quadrant four stuff in there, the not important stuff that you could get rid of. It's important that you say no to these quadrant four things and you say no or delegate a lot of these quadrant three things. That's going to free you up some time to focus on quadrant two, which is far more important. So returning once again to that computer metaphor, habit one said, you're the programmer. Habit two says, now write the program. Now habit three says, now run the program. And living it is primarily a function of independent will, self-discipline, integrity and commitment. If you've achieved these three so far, you've just achieved what Covey calls the private victory. So you've moved from dependence to independence. So now rather than relying on others around you, you're relying purely on yourself. And so we've gone through those three first habits. Be proactive, realizing that there's a gap between stimulus and response where you can choose and you can be the programmer. Habit two, begin with the end in mind. So that's the first, that mental creation of setting the vision and writing the code. And then habit three, put first things first. Having the discipline to realize that some things are just not important and you don't need to do them anymore. Focus on the things that are either going to improve your production or grow your productive capacity. Unfortunately, some people stop there being independent, thinking that now that they're reliant on themselves, they can achieve everything they want. There's actually a a much more important level beyond that, which is the public victory, which means working well with others And rather than being independent, you're now interdependent. So whether you're a president of the biggest company in the world or you're just the janitor, the moment you step from independence into interdependence in any capacity, you're stepping into a leadership role. And this doesn't mean you have to be managing anyone in the world. If you think Mm. about, say, uh, someone like Greta Thunberg, um, you know, whether you think lowly or highly of her, it doesn't really matter. You can't. You have to admit that she's someone who's managing no people. And as a 16-year-old, she's got huge influence on the whole world at the moment. That's it. So being independent means being the best version of yourself, but being interdependent means working with everyone else in the world in a way that makes everybody better off. So habit four is think win-win. So win-win is this important frame where you're no longer just thinking about yourself and trying to win for yourself. You're also thinking about everybody else around you and helping them win as well. So win-win is a frame of mind and heart. They constantly seek for mutual benefit in every single human interaction that you have. So win-win, it means that agreements or solutions are mutually beneficial and mutually satisfying. So with a win-win solution, you and the other party, you feel good and everyone feels good. Everyone won from this interaction that you had with them. So basically, you're seeing life as a cooperative and not a competitive arena. Most people tend to think in dichotomies, strong, weak, hard, soft, win, lose. They think that it's a zero-sum game, that for you to win, it infers that somebody else is going to lose. But somebody who's truly effective recognizes the benefit that if you're able to work together collaboratively and cooperatively, you can invent new solutions in which everybody wins. So win-win is the best way we want to be looking at circumstances. Another way we can look at it that is less optimal is win-lose. And this is the belief that if I win and get a, I get my share, you lose. It is the authoritarian approach. I get my way, you don't get yours. And you're using power, position, credentials, possessions, personality to get your way. 
Of course, there are some times where win-lose does apply. If you think of sport, it's obviously a, a finite game. It's a competition where one team wins, the other team loses. But if you bring that mindset to the real world, you're really going to damage relationships. If you go win-lose, you might win this time, but there's no way that person's going to want to work with you again in future. So by coming with a win-lose approach, you're going to really erode any relationships that you've built. Yeah, you're approaching life as if it's a competition, but life isn't a competition. So another way you can look at things is lose-win. And this is where you're thinking, go ahead, have your way with me. I'm a loser. I always have been. And lose-win is probably worse than win-lose because it has no standards. You've got no demands, no expectations, no visions upon yourself. And people who think lose-win, they're usually really quick to please or appease the other side. I mean, in the negotiation, you get probably a bit too nervous that you just want the other party to be happy and you don't really care about yourself. It could probably have a bit of a facade, like you're kind of selfless. Hmm. But in reality, it's a less optimal way of doing it. Again, I think there could be some applications where they, you know, lose-win, you're willing to make a small sacrifice this time in the hopes of in the long-term winning. But ultimately, that's just, again, approaching it like a bit of a game, doing a few power moves. If you lose-win, it's just saying, you know, you want to be a people pleaser. You're happy to be a walkover if it means that your boss wins or something like that. Another suboptimal way is lose-lose. Lose-lose is saying you don't care what happens to you. You're so bitter and twisted that you just want the other person to lose. So one example was in court through a divorce, a husband and wife. It was ruled that the husband had to give the wife half of everything he owned. So what he did, he sold his car. It was worth 10 grand, but he sold it 50 bucks and gave her 25. So obviously he's lost big time there, but he didn't care as long as she lost. Mm, yeah, I think that's common. Any fight you see, people fighting and they're just taking away from each other, damaging each other and no one wins. So it does happen quite a bit. And another way you can look at it is just simply just win. I mean, you just don't give a shit about the other side. It's just not win-win. It's not win-lose. It's just win with no consideration for the other side whatsoever. And you're just neutral to, to them. So obviously, those are all suboptimal. And really, the only thing that we should be striving towards is win-win. Or even adds another layer on top of this is win-win or no deal. So we're saying that, look, the ultimate goal here is win-win. But if through all our work and synergizing and collaborating, if we can't get to a point that's win-win, if we can't get to a point that both sides are completely satisfied and happy, then the next best option is actually no deal. So agree to disagree agreeably and walk away from the deal. Absolutely, because anything less than win-win in an interdependent reality, it's a real poor second best. And in the long term, it's going to damage your, your relationship with the other side. So in order to have this win-win or no deal attitude, we need to find the right balance between courage and consideration. So it means you have to be nice but also tough. It means that you need to have the, the courage and the toughness to be able to fight for a win yourself so that you're not falling into that lose-win category. You obviously need to win yourself but you also need to have the niceness and the consideration for the other side to ensure that there is a balanced deal that is a win-win in the end. Yeah, I like that. And to go along with that, it's just the inherent belief and worldview that the world is fully abundant. Um, say if you got the pie and if you're win-lose or lose-win, you really believe that the only solution is just to cut the pie and then you just share the pie. But in the abundance, you believe that the, the world has enough resources to actually grow that pie to such an extent that we don't really have to fret over cutting it. We're just growing it for everybody and then everybody wins. 
Suppose you're having a bit of trouble with your eyesight, so you go to the optometrist to try and help you out. After briefly listening to your complaint, he takes off his glasses. He goes, hey, mate, try these. They've been working for me for 10 years. They've helped me. I've got an extra pair at home. Do you want these? And then you put them on and uh, you exclaim, these are terrible, mate. Well, what's wrong, he asks. He goes, try harder. Just be positive. Just look harder. And you're like, mate, I'm, I'm positive. These things are just not working. And say if that happens, right? Like, What are the chances that you're going to go back to that optometrist next time you need help? Mm. Not a good chance. Probably zero. Man, not a bad delivery actually. Pretty shit optometrist. Shit optometrist. Good story by you though. Yeah? Yeah, thanks mate. So habit five is seek first to understand, then to be understood. So this optometrist here, he was not understanding your problem at all. He was just taking his own ideas and his own paradigms and forcing them on you saying, oh yeah, that you're telling me that you got bad eyesight. Yeah, I used to have bad eyesight in the past and this worked for me. But obviously, that optometrist wasn't truly understanding your problem and looking at it from your perspective. Communication is the most important skill in life, you could argue. Or probably there is no argument to it, basically is. Because we spend most of our waking hours communicating. But consider this, you've spent years learning how to read and write, years learning how to speak. But basically, how many years and hours have you spent learning how to listen? I don't think anyone's ever consciously thought of it, really, unless they've read this book, I guess. So this... Uh, habit is two parts the first part is seek first to understand and in order to seek to understand we need to be empathically listening so most people they're not really listening they're either speaking or they're preparing what they're about to say next no one's ever really truly listening they're only really listening with the intent to reply yeah that's what a lot of people basically do and they're filtering everything through their own paradigms and reading their own autobiography into other people's lives so the optometrist there, he read his own autobiography and assumed the prescription that worked for him is something that works for everyone else. But your autobiography doesn't translate to most people. Yeah, if you think about it, most people are just waiting for some spark in your conversation to inject their own story. You know, if you start telling somebody about your problem and you say, oh, I know exactly how you feel. I went through this exact same thing. Let me tell you about what happened to me. When you've instantly taken this person off from whatever problem they were trying to trying to tell you about, imagine if that was your kid saying they had a tough day at school, and you say, "Oh, it's it's all right, little Johnny. That used to happen to me as well. I remember when I got bullied in the playground, and <laughs> then Johnny's thinking, yeah. Dad, what the hell are you talking about? Johnny's not going to tell you his problem anymore, is he? Yeah, I'd say there's a a good majority of people who are living like that, right? And one up and ship, you tell them one story and it always just flips onto their own autobiography somehow. But really, as effective people, we're moving into habit five now, we're using empathic listening and this means with the intent to understand. So seeking first to understand means really understand it's an entirely different paradigm if you haven't tried it. So it gets inside the other person's frame of reference and you see the world through their point of view. And you look through it, you see the world as they see it, you understand their paradigm and you understand how they feel. He talks about active listening, which is a good thing where you're you know, maybe recapping what somebody else is saying, but that's almost like you know, that's a level just below. Active listening is pretty good. It's much better than listening just with the intent to reply, but active listening isn't quite empathic listening. Active listening means you're listening to the words, but empathic listening means you're trying to understand the true feelings and emotions beneath those words. So it's very powerful because it gives you actually accurate data to work with. Again, on the optometrist, that person didn't get the accurate data. If that person actually saw the world through the person's 
point of view who had the problem, then you can get the data and actually work together on something. But the other part about this empathic listening is also risky. It takes a great deal of security to go into a deep listening experience because you you open yourself up to be influenced. I went through this recently, actually. There was someone who, um, I won't say who, so I can be quite blunt and brutal, but they did some rubbish work, which was, and they published it, Popular University, and the data they had was just common sensely just stupid. Oh, mate, that reminds me of a time when I was at uni, actually, and someone did a very similar thing where they were... What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for an opportunity to try and inject that. Oh, you idiot. That's right. Continue with your story though. (laughs) But anyway, after reading this, you realize if you want to influence them for them to get change their data in some way, you need to open yourself up to be influenced. And that's what we did in that moment where we sat down, fully listening their point of view and their behavior and letting them feel special was the only Mm. way for them to come across. And at the end, you can actually bring in a different point of view. Yeah, he says that this, it's almost a little bit paradoxical in that you need extreme comfort and security in your own ideas, so much so that you're actually opening yourself to changing your mind. If you're truly understanding somebody else's point of view, you might realize that your point of view wasn't entirely right in the first place. So the first part is seek to understand and then the second part of this is obviously then be understood. And he says this is equally critical for win-win solutions And this maturity is the balance between courage and consideration. Yeah, I think this is the part of Habit 5 that often gets missed. Admittedly, when you first started reading, the first time I read it, I definitely just thought of the seek first to understand. You think about listening, you think about engaging with other people. That um, Obviously, that's a super, super important first step, but a lot of people forget about the second step and that you also need to then be understood. You need to be able to communicate your own ideas clearly. You need to be able to speak in a way that you know mixes that courage and consideration for the other person so that you can effectively get your ideas across, not just be listening all the time and understanding all the time, but also then being understood by others. And because you've opened yourself up to the influence, when you present your information, it might actually shift in a certain way uh, because you've actually learned something from the other party and you end up in a better position than you were beforehand. One great thing is that habit five is deeply within your circle of influence. So remembering back that circle of concern, circle of influence, your ability to listen and understand and then your ability to speak and be understood are completely within your own control. You can practice empathic listening, you can improve your listening skills and you can also improve your speaking skills becoming you know, more clear, more structured and getting your own ideas across in a way that people can understand. So because they're deep within your circle of influence, you've really got no choice but to try and improve these skills. And out of all the habits, this is something that you can do right now. Whenever you turn this podcast off and your first interaction with somebody, you can actually have the goal to seek to understand them first. And then you know, over time, if you make it a habit, and then your circle of influence will be increased. Habit six is synergize and when properly understood, it is the highest activity of all of life and simply defined, synergy means that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and it's everywhere in nature. Say if you plant two plants close together, the roots are going to co-mingle and improve the quality of the soil so that both plants will grow better than if they were separated or if you've got a bunch of pieces of wood Individually, they're not very strong, but if you actually put it in a trust formation or something, they interact in a different way and become much more stronger than the sum of its parts as well. And you see this kind of thing everywhere. In organizations, if you get people with different skill sets, 
together as a team, you actually might be much stronger than the individuals as well. So with synergy, one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two. It can equal three or more or 5,000. The highest forms of synergy focus on different unique human endowments. We're talking about bringing all of these different elements together now and working in a way with the other people around us that creates better outcomes for everybody. We often think that if we bring together two people with differing opinions, the simplistic view is to think one person's right, one person's wrong. But of course, the synergistic view is to realize that both people can, whilst they disagree, they can actually both be right. And there's actually merit in both people's ideas here. So by combining the different approaches, combining the different ideas, you actually get something better than just the two people fighting against each other. Mate, I think this is probably the most difficult as well. And this is something I think in the fourth time reading it, I feel like I'm almost trying to understand it because say if you really believe in something, and for me, it might be something like, Uh, sustainability and climate change or something like that say if you come across someone who's fully ideologically opposed to that i mean you could just get pissed off at them um, and then move on and then you just don't have a good relationship with that person but if you're someone who values synergy you can actually understand them and realize that although they've got a different opinion there's an opportunity for you to learn a little bit more about the world because they see something different and you actually get excited because someone sees something different because in some way you've got the opportunity to learn. I mean, if you just surround yourself with a bunch of people who believe the exact same things, I mean, what the hell are you going to learn about the world? The person who is truly effective isn't the one who thinks they've got the best ideas. It isn't the one who can influence all the other people. The most effective person is the one that has the humility and the reverence to recognize their own limitations and recognize the strengths that are in other people. I guess the the naive person comes in thinking that to be the most effective, they just have to be the best. They have to lead all the meetings. They have to do all the projects. They have to win all the work. But really the most effective person is the one that that can bring a team together and capitalize on each person's different strengths. Yeah, such an interdependent person might logically believe that two people can disagree on the same thing and at the same time they both can be right. I mean, there's just not one answer to a lot of things in the world. And the reason people interpret things differently is because you've been conditioned in your background to see things differently. And unless we value the differences in perceptions between people who disagree, unless we value each other and give credence to the possibility that they're both right, um, we can never transcend the limits of our own conditioning. I think one way to look at this is like everyone born, everyone's a human being, we've basically got the same cognitive capacity that we're born with and this is exactly right you're born with one set of experiences with the same cognitive capacity another person's got a whole different set of experience with a different cognitive capacity so you know that alone if you look at it objectively there's no reason why you should be right compared to someone else and you can be so sure on your own worldview yeah the ineffective person if someone has two different opinions they just think one's right one's wrong the extremely effective person says, hey, you've got a different idea to me. That's great. You see it differently than I do. How can you help me see what you see? Because if two people have the exact same opinion, one is kind of unnecessarily and irrelevant. If you know, if there's two people, one idea, you really only need one person for that idea. Much better is two people with two different ideas and together they can work together to take, to take the best bits of each and form, I guess, the the middle way or that third alternative, which is better than both ideas individually. (laughs) 
let's recap and, and uh, reset where we're up to at this stage. We started as a dependent person. We move from being dependent to being independent by going through the private victory, which was the first three habits. Be proactive, begin with the end in mind, put first things first. From there, we recognize that independence isn't the goal and we can actually go a level further and that's interdependence. So we went from independence to interdependence by going through the public victory, which was habits four, five, and six, which was think win-win, seek first to understand, then to be understood, and synergize. Now we're at habit seven. Habit seven is what ties everything together and it's a process of renewal. It's this constant renewal, constant refreshing, constant improving that makes all the other six even stronger. Suppose you were to come up to someone in the woods working feverishly to saw down a tree and you know, they've been going at it for a while, they're full of sweat and you ask them, mate, you look exhausted. How long have you been at it? And he goes, over five hours, he returns. Why don't you take a break for a few minutes to sharpen your saw, mate? It's going to go much faster. And, you know, he responds, I don't have time to sharpen the saw. I'm too busy sawing. That's it, mate. That's it. Good if delivery you, today of stories. That's I'll not, see you long. Yeah, that, that's right. If you're too busy um, sawing, then you're never going to sharpen the saw. But, of course, maybe if this bloke stopped and rather than hacking at this tree with his blunt saw, if he actually took a few minutes to sharpen the saw, it wouldn't take him five hours. You know, there's a classic quote that gets attributed to 30 different people. I don't know who the first bloke Lincoln. who said it was. You reckon he's first? I reckon it's Lincoln. He gets attributed. I've heard it said by six... Covey, eight. actually. It's Covey. <laughs> Covey can claim As it. Covey said, you know, if, if you give me eight hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend the first two sharpening the saw. Or yeah. first six, I don't know how many hours. Yeah. A fuckload of hours sharpening <laughs> the saw. And it is very common to just run yourself in the ground and not take the time out to actually replenish and renew yourself um, to make everything else more possible. It's really about tying all these different things together. It means taking a step back. It means being proactive. It means going through those quadrant two activities. It's doing all of these things that actually refresh ourselves and sharpen ourselves in a way that makes our assaults at the other habits even more effective. It's again, rather than just getting so bogged down in that P, that production, it means focusing on the PC, the productive capacity in sort of giving yourself the, the sharpening that you need to, to tackle that production. Because taking the time out to renew and look after yourself, he says, is the biggest investment or the most powerful investment that you can possibly do because you, your body and the way you handle things and your spiritual and everything, uh, it's the only instrument that you've got in your life to actually be able to contribute. There are four dimensions that we need to recognize here and uh, sharpen. I really like this word sharpen now, sharpen. Mm. So on the physical dimension, we really need to sharpen ourselves. So that means things like caring for our physical body. It means eating the right foods, getting sufficient rest, having a bit of relaxation every now and then, exercising regularly, building up a bit of strength, building up a bit of endurance and building up your physical body and renewing it and sharpening it. A lot of people out there think they don't have enough time to exercise and if you think about it, it's a pretty distorted way to look at the world because they'll think they're too busy but really when you exercise, you're making the times when you do produce all that much better because you are sharpened. You've also got here the spiritual dimension and this is your core, your center, your commitment to your own value system. It draws upon the sources that inspire you and uplift you and tie you to the timeless truths of humanity. Uh, so whatever your spiritual practice might be, 
it might be reading, it might be meditation, it might be running, it might be going to the beach. I'm not sure what it is, but everyone's got their own one. Another dimension we need to focus on is the mental dimension. So most of our mental development and most of the time we spend studying is during school and a lot of people stop sharpening their mental dimension after the formal education of school finishes. But of course, if you stop sharpening, it means your mind starts to atrophy. So instead of uh, sitting at home watching TV, we need to do some more study and some more learning. Be always open to new experiences. Be always open to broadening your range and also deepening your knowledge. Yeah, that atrophy is very common. I finally found this stat about how much TV everyone watches each week on average and it's 35 to 45 hours. I think we've um, mentioned this stat many times without knowing where the we just made it number up, yeah. came from, but <laughs> this is legit. You this is well, somewhere in the back of the Have you got a brain. reference? Or Covey. Oh, Covey's a reference. Oh, a, oh, comes oh, nice. from Covey. oh, good. Oh, good. We can, we can blame him from now on. Yeah. And finally, you got the social and the emotional dimension. And this is service to your community. It's empathy. It's synergy. It's intrinsic security. It's speaking to people with your family and your loved ones and, and all of that. There's a lot of sharpening that we, we need to do. And all this, all this sharpening, all this renewal, it leads to an upward spiral we're looking to always improve ourselves, looking to learn new things, looking to commit to change, looking to actually making that change. And once we make that change, we're going to realize that there's still more to learn. As we, we start from where we are, we start to make some improvements. As we go and as we improve and as we move upward towards this spiral, we realize that there's only still more to learn, still more growth and change ahead of us. So, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, we recommend this to everyone if you haven't read it yet. For wherever you are on your journey, it's got loads of value and loads of wisdom there. As we said at the start, every time I've revisited it, I've got a different interpretation and learned something different from it. Um, a lot of our old favorite books, when we come back to them, they're a bit of a disappointment, to be honest. And I was thinking maybe, again, this would be a disappointment, but it definitely wasn't. Yeah, I think this is an absolute must-read. Either if you haven't read it before, must-read. If you've read it a few years ago, definitely revisit it. I think for me, the first time I read it, I was, I guess, blown away by the circle of influence versus circle of concern. The second time I read it, it was that urgent versus important matrix. This time I think it was more about the second half of Habit 5, you know, not just seeking to first to understand, but then to be understood. So I think that was the, the one that stood out for me this time. Each time it sort of shifts to a different habit that sticks out as the most important. 